Arthur Balper, the 200 Brass from Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Cameron has said off-air uh, and then admits to it uh, in in the edition of Fangraphs Audio that follows uh, that if, if he could, uh, if were he able, he would more or less dedicate uh, all of his posts to Los Angeles Angels outfielder Mike Trout. In fact, he dedicates uh, some of what follows to Mike Trout, to Mike Trout's age 21 season, uh, which it turns out as of today, Monday, the day on which we recorded this, uh, is the best ever for uh, for an age 21 player ever, uh, at least according to War, uh, is the thing. But listen, Dave Cameron does not uh, dedicate this entire edition of Fangraphs Audio discussing Mike Trout's age 21 season. He also discusses Mike Trout's age 20 season in part. Um, that's about the first 25 minutes. Uh, there is some reserve for uh, uh, some brief notes on qualifying offers, uh, about which Dave Cameron has written recently, and also use Mero Petit. What gives? Uh, hopefully Dave Cameron answers that question. Uh, or or we hopefully we record it, because he did answer it uh, to me. What is it? It is uh, Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Just days ago. We did ago. not record the in-person podcast. Like no, we promised. didn't. We have. We still haven't done it in person. Uh, that's not true. We did some from the winter meetings a couple of years ago. All right, maybe. That, yeah, but I didn't publish that. No, you did. We did like a daily winter meetings update podcast. Yeah, but was I there? No, maybe not. <laughs> so, so whose whose original contention is correct? Right. Well, there were like several of us in person. It was like. Joe Paul or something. Yeah, Joe Paul was there. That's right. Yeah. Right. Rob Nyer was there. You handed the phone to Rob Nyer, I believe. Right. Yeah. 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 But uh, not as, not in person. I've seen you before, okay. though. I've seen you. Spent time with you before. Right. We had a uh, we had a good time uh, this weekend. We did. Yep. Very good. Um. You do you want to get down to business immediately? Yes. Let's talk about you forgetting your wife's birthday. <laughs> okay. That's weird. It's weird. I didn't. That's not on the agenda I sent out. I feel like. No, no, that is the only agenda. That's the whole podcast. Uh, like the podcast is going to be like analyzing 100% of Carson Sestouli's upcoming divorce. My failures. Yeah, yeah. Well, it just expedites the the divorce <laughs> that was inevitable. The inevitable, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did. Uh, I actually did not completely forget my my wife's birthday. Uh, I was going to call her anyway, um, and I'm aware. I actually made a comment earlier in the day about how I always make my wife a Trace Leches cake on her birthday. Um, this is how sweet I am and how sweet it is to be loved by me, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is a James Taylor song. But I, uh, I do that. But then I was like, huh, I guess I'm not going to do that this year. I literally said this out loud. I guess I'm not going to do that this, this year because I won't be there on her birthday because it's in the beginning part of September and I'm not going uh, to see her till the middle part because she's in uh, Paris, France. Uh, and then somehow I didn't make the connection right away. Uh, but then, uh, yeah, I was out uh, watching some football here in the, in the Washington, D.C. area, um, in which metropolitan area I'm staying with uh, the Dark Overlord, David Appman, uh, CEO and founder of Fangraphs. And, uh, and yeah, but I do remember I talked to her and uh, worked out worked out in the end, it turns out. Right. Well, I, I was enjoying texting with our mutual friend in D.C. Mm-hmm. about the uh, disastrous performance of Marcus Semyon, uh that we witnessed in Baltimore on Saturday, and then he he said that uh, 
watching you realize that you had not yet called her wife on her birthday mm-hmm. uh, was even better than watching Marcus Semyon flail wildly at Darren O'Day's lighters. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, so that's actually a baseball related time. We did get to see Marcus Semyon play. Uh, of course, Marcus Semyon's been a fixture, uh, a fixture, Dave Cameron, on the uh, the French Five. And, right. And um, um, for good reason. He uh, has had an excellent year. Um uh, not appeared on any uh, top 100 prospect list prior to the season, and um, uh, excellent year uh, with Double um, A Birmingham, um, and then uh, carried uh, some of those skills over to Triple A Charlotte. Uh, we could say I think that uh, he has work to do with major league pitching, in particular the breaking balls part of it. Right, I I think the he should never maybe never face Darren O'Day ever again. Darren O'Day. Not great. Darren Day's tough on right-handers. And we saw in, um, not just to, to Semyon, we saw to at least one other batter, uh, a, um, a phenomenon regarding Darren Day, uh, Darren Day about which you yourself have written. Uh, yes, right, where he threw sliders early in the count and fastballs uh, later in the count, which is you know, kind of an interesting way of pitching. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why O'Day uh, probably doesn't have a large distance, but as you'd expect from a, a fight-arming slider guy. Right. Now, when he throws those sliders early to left-handers, is, is he looking for called strikes, essentially? Yeah, I think he's basically counting on the fact that hitters are up there looking fastball early in the count. And so when they see a bendy pitch, they, they might not chase it and they'll get a free strike. So it's kind of a, a deceptive uh, idea. The, the, the slider is not a great pitch against lefties, but if he throws it in the count where they're looking fastball, he might steal a strike. Do we, do we have a sense that, I mean, obviously scouting reports, I mean, if Dave Cameron has figured that out, we might assume that one other person has. But maybe, maybe not. Um, probably probably uh, I'm not the only person in the world who noticed it. Right. I assume Darren, Day, Darren O'Day notices it. Uh, I would think that he is conscious of the fact that he is doing this. Yeah. Right. Or his, pitch, or his pitching coach at least uh, knows enough to tell uh, Matt Wieters or Chris Snyder or whomever is catching um, right. Darren O'Day. I, I would think this is probably something that is. Coordinated between all of them. Right. So here's the thing, though. So at some point, it gets uh, these scouting reports get into the hands of left-handed batters. They say I might be getting a slider first pitch. This is um, pitch which just naturally, because I'm a left-handed batter against a side-harming right-hander, I'm going to have a good look at it. Uh, Is uh, is this one of those cases where we might anticipate the? We're spending a lot of minutes on Darren O'Day, but let's go for it because it's a universal. It's a universal idea, at least, uh, where left-handers might say, mm, "I'm going to, I'm going to take a hack early uh, if I see if I see a slider from Darren O'Day." You you would think that this would be the kind of thing that would get around the league pretty quickly, uh, and so I would imagine that uh, you know O'Day probably is 100% sliders on the first pitch. You know, mm-hmm. he's mixing it a decent amount, uh, where he is throwing some first pitch fastballs, and uh, I think the key is for him to uh, maybe anticipate. Uh, whether, you know, in his last few bats, if he's thrown a first-pitch slider, maybe he shouldn't do it again. I think, you know, like, some kind of game theory comes into play here where uh, if he can mix them enough and give the hitter some question over what pitch he's going to see on that first pitch, then then they won't just go up there hacking at a slider. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about the thing um, about which you most want to talk about. And this is, uh, we, we talked when, when we were uh, in each other's company, uh, you mentioned that, um, most days, if you were going to write an article, it would concern Mike Trout. Is that uh, true or false, would you say? I think if I had the choice, we would just be called Mike Troutcraft. Mike Troutcraft, yeah. At least over the last two years, we would have been. Um, you uh, did you Were you able to hold off today? 
I, I was able to hold off. I tweeted about Mike Trout, but I didn't. I didn't actually write about it. You tweeted yeah. about Mike Trout, and let's the day, uh, the day is not over yet. Let's address. Uh, I saw two tweets um, from your account. Yeah, one concerning yeah. Uh, one concerning now Mike Trout as uh, relative to all twenty-one year olds, or at least in the modern era. All 21-year-olds well, no, all, all, all ever. All 21-year-olds ever. And if you were to compare um, Mike Trout's age 21 season to every baseball player ever's age 21 season, how, how do you think it would uh, – how, how would it quit itself? It is number one as of this weekend. He, he's been hanging around the top for a while. Uh, and then with the uh, UVR update that uh, rolls every Monday, he is, uh, he is fielding rating is getting more and more positive as the season goes on, as you'd expect. There was, you know, some noise about it being negative early in the season, but it's regressing back to the positive number that we would expect from Mike Trout. Uh, he's now up to 9.8 WAR, uh, and it's the, the single highest total that any 21-year-old has ever had in the history of baseball. After he did the exact same thing last year and posted the best 20-year-old uh, season in the history of baseball. Right, and it makes sense that it would, but uh, because I'm a moron, I checked anyway to see if he had the highest cumulative. Uh, uh, yep. wins above replacement for a 21, right. age 20 and 21 season? And uh, yes, he does, because if you're the highest at 21 and the highest at 20, then you're going to be the highest cumulative as well. Right. And actually, if you just take off the minimum age barrier, because there are players who have been in the majors at 18, 19, and some of them have actually been pretty decent in those years. Uh, even if you take off the, uh, the minimum, so it's just up to age 21 season, the two best uh under 21 seasons of all time are Mike Trout's 2012 and 2013. Right, okay. I assume, uh, is Mel Ott, I think I feel like Mel Ott's there. Yeah, Mel Ott's hanging around. Uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson uh, mm-hmm. is, in the, is in the discussion. Um, but, you know, there's a bunch of Hall of Famers who are really good, and then Mike Trout's been better than all of them. Right, and, um, and I think that uh, I was talking with a, a friend of mine uh, just the other day and noting that uh, – at this point, Mike Trout, uh, the Hall of Fame threshold, uh, t- typically in terms of wins, is about 60. Is that, is that like the 50-50 mark, typically? Yeah, somewhere in there, 60 to 70. Okay. So uh, um, we would say by that by that definition. And, of course, this is not accounting for peak seasons relative uh, to sort of uh, long, you know, the, the benefits of longevity. Uh, uh, but total overall, uh, he's about a third of the way to the Hall of Fame at this point. Right. I think the, the most fun way I've heard you describe this if Mike Trout does not regress and he continues his current performance over the last two years, for the next four years, Mike Trout will be a, a Hall of Fame worthy player before he becomes a free agent. Hmm. I'm going to wow, uh, wow. I'm going to say that's not happened before, or with. I, I think well, it probably happened back when there was no free agency. Right. Uh, but I think in the modern era, since teams were given six, you know, mostly six plus years, almost seven years of team control over a player. Uh, we have not seen a player um, make a Hall of Fame case for himself in the first six years. And, uh, you know, I don't think Mike Trout's going to get there either. I mean, to expect him to continue to post ten more seasons for each of the next four years is, uh, you know, a tall task. But it's possible. It is not out of the realm of possibility that before Mike Trout signs his first long-term contract as a free agent, uh, he would already be a, a qualified, you know, worthy Hall of Famer. Do we do we know... Uh... Um, in terms of, I guess, both Hall of, Hall of Fame voting and actually what is most <clears throat> valuable for, uh, for teams and for which these sort of players play, uh, how do we how do we negotiate peak versus longevity in these cases? I think so. Like the the ballot actually, I believe says you have to have ten years in the major league. So Mike Trout 
I mean, technically wouldn't be eligible for the Hall of Fame before he hits free agency because he has to play 10 years. He could be terrible for the last four, but he would have to play them. He would have to have 10 years of major league service to get into the Hall of Fame, uh, which I think you could argue is maybe an incorrect rule. If you're amazing for eight, then well, you're me, you should maybe still get in the Hall of Fame. But uh, I think that's the rule. You need to have 10 years. Um, and I think in, in general, uh, it skews towards peak. So I think we've seen like Sandy Kovacs in the Hall of Fame. Uh, and he was done at age 31, I believe. Uh, it was kind of the end of his career. Uh, there's certainly players. I mean, Ken Griffey Jr. is going to waltz into the Hall of Fame. He was terrible in his 30s. Like, he basically almost all of his value uh, came during his, his 20s. Um, you know, he put in like 11 or 12 amazing years and then 10 really terrible ones. Uh, so I think, you know, there's going to be uh, some kind of preference towards peak over longevity, Longevity can certainly get you in, especially if you hit a milestone like 3,000 hits or 300 wins or whatever. Uh, but I think, in general, voters tend to prefer greatness over long-term goodness. Yeah, and uh, and he has the greatness part nailed down. I mean, two, two 10-win seasons. Good job, Mike Trout. Yeah, um, right. I think if you, if you look at the history of baseball, the guys who have had multiple 10-win seasons, there's like a dozen of them, and they're all in the Hall of Fame. Now, in terms of – you mentioned – you mentioned uh, he could, in theory, have you know 60 wins uh, before he becomes a free agent, uh, or before he hits what now would be the year at which, uh, at which he signs his first big contract. Um, one assumes, especially given the trend in recent years uh, towards teams uh, locking up very talented young players um, for, for quite a long time, uh, one assumes this is, and this is something that's mutually beneficial because the young player is assured uh, the his first millions, right, and uh, those are more important than the latter millions. And then the team obviously likes it because they're banking on the fact that they're going to be getting value uh, um, f- from it. And uh, But do we know what's going on with Mike Trout? Where, where does that stand right now? Well, I, I mean, I don't think anything's been talked about. I think this offseason, the Angels are going to have to make Mike Trout a really significant offer that buys out some free agent years. Like they just can't keep going year to year with him without trying to find him an extension. Now, the question is, can they make him an offer that tempts him enough to say, uh, you know, over the next four years, I'm going to make, you know, whatever it is, $40, $50 million, whatever he thinks he's going to make through arbitration over the next four years. Uh, and then if they want to buy out, say, five or six free agents even, what kind of value you place on those? And then, you know, are they going to give him a big enough salary to uh, kind of take the take the money and run? Uh, I mean, I don't think it's any question that if you want to find Mike Trout right now, your your long-term contract has to start with a two. Like, you're not getting him for less than $200 million. So uh, quite, a, quite a bit of money there, yeah. Right, and this is a guy who's, you know, uh, four years from free agency. I think there's some argument to be made that that's a risk not worth taking, but Mike Trout's not going to find a long-term deal for $175 million or $150 million. He's, he's going to, you know, either break the bank or they're going to give him a record deal this winter. I think they have to try and give him the record deal, whether he'll take it or not. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I would I would advise against it just because I think you should give him a baseball deal. I don't know what his right. musical skills are like, but right. uh, I don't think a record deal is going to help Mike Trout or the Angels <laughs> at this point. Well, it depends. Jay-Z's an agent now, right? So. Yeah, that's right. Um, and just to go back to your point about Griffey, uh, I did some clandestine uh, ser- uh, clandestine search here on Fangraphs.com. And uh, you know that I uh, will frequently – I frequently take exception to how you use the word terrible. You jump to superlatives. We we know this. This is we've discussed this. Yeah, right. Yeah, you you didn't like it, uh, when I was talking about how terrible Marcus Semyon looked on Saturday. No, I did not care for that. Uh, but also, I didn't care the fact that you said that. I think you said that Josh Fegley is terrible. Josh Fegley is terrible. Okay, but but you also at the same time said that Josh Fegley is a top fifty catcher. You think? 
Yes, but the, you know, there's 30 starting major league catchers in baseball, and you know, being 50th isn't very good. I still think that being among the 50 best catchers, at least uh, within affiliated baseball, is an impressive feat. Okay. Well, we basically have different scales. I, I pretty much whatever I'm talking, I am talking relative to the pool of major league players. I know. You are talking relative to the pool of human beings on earth. <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, you know, my heart, my heart bleeds for those people, whereas you're, you're uh, cruel and merciless. Yeah, I have no heart. Remember, remember, remember how you used to have that mercy, but then you got rid of it. And now you're merciless. I actually don't remember having mercy. When was that? Uh, I don't know. I don't. I, I was. I assumed at some point in your career. I mean. Yeah, mother. I don't know. Anyone with a mother. We all have mothers, so I would think we'll soon we'll start there. Yeah, there's some pretty horrible people that had mothers. Hitler had a mother. Yeah, that's true. He did. Man, Mrs. Hitler. Rob Deal. She, she, she should have she should have done something different, I assume. Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, but no, with regard to King Griffey, um, you were not far off uh, in that way uh, because uh, I did not know this about him, or at least I hadn't uh, really taken a, um, a, a long look at it. Uh, yeah, through age 30, quite good. Um, very few seasons below five wins at that point. Many above, many in the, a couple in the nines, eight. After his age 30 season, 31, age 31 to age 40, so spanning the entirety of his 30s, really, he uh, had only one season worth better than two wins. Yeah. Right. Baz yeah, I think I think he, he, he like, totaled like five war after age 30 or something. Like his career war totaled like, I don't know, 87 or something, and it was like 82 at age 30. Right, and actually, uh, he might have gone backwards. Uh, he, he, um, his last five seasons were either four of them were negative. He actually, yeah. yeah, he went. He was, he, he, he was really poor at the end of his career. Yeah, he was. He was pretty bad, and he kept getting uh, contracts, though. I guess. Yeah, I think you know he he could hit still, kind of, sort of, not really well, but he was never an awful hitter until the very end. Right, and you know teams will keep giving jobs to guys who can hit. Yeah, he still he still made quite a bit of contact. Um, Towards the end there, yeah. Anyway, another player I was thinking about in terms of uh, like worst case scenarios for like a Mike Trout situation, right? Where if you sign a guy like that, and uh, I had in mind, I thought for a second maybe Dale Murphy, but uh, Dale Murphy right. was a different animal. Uh, he didn't really have a great season till he was eight, till age twenty four, and he, he what MVP, MVP twice, I think, right? Right. Yeah, Dale Murphy had a nice like six year run, but it wasn't at the you know at age twenty twenty one. And it was over, you know, fairly soon. Right. Uh, I think probably the, if you were going to say, like, is there any example of a guy who was superlative, super young, came up, and then just totally fell apart later in his career, it's like Andrew Jones. That's kind of the guy you're going to point to is, like, the Mike Trout downside. And, you know, Andrew Jones has, like, 70 war. So, you know, if that's your downside, not not so bad. Right. And then and then Jones uh, had sort of like a, uh, like a strange um... – uh, se- second second act to his career, I think. Right, he, he he did a little bit. He he was not a total failure uh, in those last couple of years. He could, I think he he was platooned a lot. He could really hit left-handers still, and uh, he was uh, at least by the metrics still uh, still average in the field, even though uh, physically he didn't look like he should be. Right, like Andrew Jones went from being a super athletic base stealing fly catcher to a overweight. Uh, mediocre defensive slugger, which was quite the interesting transformation. But he, you know, like he had those terrible, uh, terrible year, I guess, in LA, uh, after the Dodgers gave him a bunch of money and he was atrocious. Uh, but you know, besides that one year, he was always at least moderately useful, uh, as a platoon guy. Uh, but he certainly, like, went from being amazing to, you know, a role player in a hurry in his late 20s. Right. Is there any concern about, um, uh, 
Um, is there any concern about Mike Trout's physique? Because he does have, uh, you know, he's he's pretty heavy on top, and he's only 21. Um, is there any? Uh, I mean, is that a concern? I think in terms of his uh, long-term defensive performance, it is. I think if you're going to look at Trout and say, right now, a huge part of his value is speed and defense, so the kind of things that involve athleticism and running. Uh, I think if you look at Mike Trout, it is not that hard to see him in seven or eight years not being uh, an elite defensive outfielder or an elite base runner anymore uh, and getting to the point where, you know, maybe he, almost the entirety of his value comes from his bat. Good news, Mike Trout's bat, very good. Okay, right. So, uh, I mean, if Mike Trout were playing first base right now, say, if, if he yeah. did have the defensive skills of, you know, uh, average first baseman, uh, how many wins would we be talking about then? Probably six or seven. I mean, you know, I think offensively he's the best guy in baseball not named Miguel Cabrera. Maybe you could throw, like, Joey Votto into that next one. But, you know, he's, he's up there. Mike Trout's in, in contention to be the second best hitter in baseball when you're considering his base running, he's probably the best offensive player in baseball. Uh, you know, that plays in any position. Yeah, I'm looking at that right now as well. Also very impressive. Wow. You ever been to this fangraphs.com? This yeah, it's a really fantastic site. Yeah, I gotta go, I gotta go use this. I was also looking around, uh, this is what's called a professional segue, uh, Dave Cameron. So, <clears throat> add attention, sir. Uh, I was looking at fangraphs.com today. And uh, and I you know I read it sometimes and uh, I was uh, there's been a couple posts recently about hitters uh, getting qualifying offers hitters and pitchers one one for hitters right. one for pitchers whoever wrote this right. uh, was uh, thorough and uh, was smart I think that he did one for hitters and then and then another one for pitchers so uh, right well, they were they were they were over two thousand words apiece so doing one post would have been uh, war and peace kind of uh, length right right yeah without all the sex scenes in it either. Right. Mhm. You ever read those? That's the uh, that's the, the director's cut of War and Peace. You might not have seen that one. I have not, and I think it, you know I'm probably gonna choose to to avoid it. Okay, that's fair. Uh, fair enough. Um, so what? So let's start with qualifying offers briefly. Just a uh, a primer of sorts. This, this is a, this is part of the CBA, which has replaced the Type A and Type B free agent uh, sort of sort of uh, arrangement. This is uh, essentially, you know, to, the union was unhappy with the uh, amount of players receiving a qualifying offer and the types. I mean, I think under the old system, release pitchers got screwed because the the system that was 25 years old at that point and silly in the way it qualified type A and type B players would constantly be rating like decent but not spectacular middle relievers as type A, which means they, their value would be instantly killed and teams were stockpiling these kinds of relievers in order to get draft picks. The old system was was three, so. In the new CBA, they, or the current CBA, they've replaced it with uh, a requirement that every team, if they want draft compensation from their free agent who might leave, has to give them a qualifying offer equal to the average of the top 125 salaries. This year, that's going to work out to about $14 million. So you wouldn't give a middle reliever $14 million. Therefore, those guys are kind of free of the burden that Type A would have struck them with. But, uh, you know, there's certainly players kind of in that bubble who may or may not be worth $14 million, uh, and those are probably the ones that make for the interesting discussion. So it, so essentially it, it allows the market to play a little bit of a, of a larger role in deciding um, who is and who is not going to be worth a, a draft pick, right? Because before it was not really entirely the market. If you're saying, 
you know, like, right, you're, like you're saying, if, if Neil Cops or something is all of a sudden a type B free agent, a team has to, right. you know, or, or is type A free agent, um, that's that's a problem. And I'm sure Neil Cops is not thrilled about it, and I'm sure by extension the union's not thrilled about it. Right. And I think that there's no question that this system is more fair, and it drastically reduced the number of players who had compensation attached to them. I think in the old system it was generally between 30 and 40. Last year it was nine. So the union got what they wanted uh, to a larger degree, and that it, it heavily reduced uh, the number of players who had compensation attached. And if you don't have compensation attached, you sign for more money because there's not a tax imposed on the signing team. Uh, I think what we saw last year, though, is there is certainly a bubble uh, around kind of the the area of uh, the mid-level, slightly above average, but not superstar player, where the qualifying offer can can really do some damage to their to their market value. Uh, and, and on the flip side, it can really do wonders for a player who's traded midseason and doesn't have the qualifying offer. So Matt Garza and Ricky Nolasco are going to receive significantly more money this winter because they were traded midseason, not because they are anything better than they were three months ago, but simply because they can't receive the qualifying offer. It earned them a lot of extra money. So it sets up some, some, some weird incentives for players to want to be traded midseason, uh, and it really harms a certain tier of player uh, much more than others. Okay, right. So, it, uh, right, that, yeah, I was going to ask about that. It seems like, right, where Metcars would be like, hey, do you guys, you guys have any interest in trading me? I'm just kind of hanging right. out around here. And then I imagine, um, uh, I imagine there were certain players. Well, here, here's the question. Last year, were there certain players who were not offered qualifying offers? It seems like it would have made sense to do that. Or uh, alternatively, are there players um, who were not offered qualifying artists, it seems like they ought to have been. No, is that what I said the first time? You that's understand what I mean. Yeah, you, you just said the same thing twice. Let's pretend but I said, yeah, uh, I, yeah you, uh, let's pretend you understand what I mean. Right. So I think last year there were a couple of players who didn't receive qualifying offers that were, uh, I think you just classified them as mistakes. The Washington National screwed up when they didn't make Evan Jackson a qualifying offer. He went on to find a four-year, what, $60 million deal with the Cubs. There's no way he was taking 113, coming off a pretty solid season as like a 27-year-old inning leader. Uh, you know, he was he, he was never going to take that deal. And getting Adam Jackson back for 13 million on one year wouldn't have been that bad a deal anyway. So for the Nationals to not make Edwin Jackson the qualifying offer and then compound that issue by giving more money on a multi-year deal to Rafael Soriano, which cost them a draft pick, was uh, a little bizarre. Probably the Nationals' biggest mistake last winter. Now wait a second. Um, okay, so, if, if we pause right there, with a with a situation like that. <clears throat> Do we understand now? I'm not saying it's it's going to be great reasoning, but is, do we do we understand what the reasoning would have been at the time? I think they just decided that they didn't necessarily want to pay Edward Jackson a large sum of money, and they were afraid of the very small risk of him accepting. Um, my guess is it was just a risk aversion gone wildly too far, mm-hmm. and so they said, you know what, we're we're we want to pursue Dan Heron, we want to pursue you know. The Darn fan. There's some other guys we want to give our money to. We don't want to take the chance that Edwin Jackson sticks us with a $13 million bill for a pitcher we might not want. Uh, let's just say, you know, it's not worth it and let him go. Okay. Uh, Edwin Jackson, though, not a bad pitcher, turns out. Well, I mean, he didn't have a great year. I mean, I think in retrospect, you could, you know, maybe say from the national perspective, like, ah, they saw this coming and they avoided paying $13 million a year to a, a pitcher in the area over five. But right, I mean, Edwin Jackson's a pretty solid middle of the rotation starter. Uh, obviously, the market valued him at more than 113. I think there was almost no chance that Edward Jackson was going to take the qualifying offer if they made it to him. Uh, so it was basically a risk-free or very low-risk option for the Nationals to just get a draft pick for him. Uh, he wouldn't have gotten, you know, what he got if he had compensation attached. But he wouldn't have taken the 113. 
Well, here, wait, here's a quick question. Uh, am I, do I not recollect a study uh, in which someone found that um, teams that allow pitchers to go, uh, especially like in a situation maybe like Jackson's, or maybe this was the case with Heron at some point, teams that allow pitchers to go, those pitchers maybe end up performing worse in the future than we would have expected otherwise. Is, is, so, am I paraphrasing yeah. something? Yeah, this is Matt Swartz's study from the Hardball Time Annual a couple of years ago, and he's written about this a few other places as well. But he basically calls it other people's players, and not just pitchers. Uh, essentially, if you look at two types of free agents and you break them in half of free agents who change teams and free agents who stay with their own team, the free agents who stay with their own team do remarkably better than free agents who change teams. Matt's theory is that this is basically uh, information asymmetry. So teams know... Uh, that, you know, what Dan Aaron or whoever it is, there's something wrong with him that not everyone else in baseball knows, and they choose to not disclose that information to the other teams, but to use it to their own benefit to not re-sign that player. Uh, and then that player goes and performs worse than maybe the projections thought he would have, because there was something wrong that the Angels or whoever it was knew that was wrong with Dan Aaron, and that's why they didn't re-sign him. I think we could see this with Texas and Josh Hamilton last year. They didn't make really any kind of effort to re-sign Josh Hamilton. Uh, they probably saw some red flags and watching him play every day and said, you know, this just isn't the guy we want to bet big on. Uh, the Angels did not pick up on those red flags, gave Josh Hamilton $125 million, and now they really regret it. Where if you take a player who resigns with this team, who has this medical information and who knows him and who knows he's probably not done cocaine uh, and, you know, maybe he doesn't have, you know, all kinds of off-the-field issues, uh, isn't battling alcoholism, whatever it is, these, these off-the-field things that could affect his performance, the team who's around him all the time knows that stuff better than a team who's looking at it from the outside. So if the player resigns, you're kind of got a little bit of a selection bias where you're basically screening out all those things that the team who has him could know about and putting him into a lower risk category. Okay. All right. That's very good. Now, uh, <clears throat> you, you, did, you did exactly what I asked. Thank you. The, uh, the other sort of player may be one who did receive a qualifying offer, uh, perhaps where it may, maybe would have made sense uh, – the alternative. Did this happen more or less often than the other side? Uh, well, I don't think there was anyone who got the qualifying offer last year who shouldn't have. I think, you know, you look at the nine players who, who got it, they all turned it down, uh, and they all actually signed for more money uh, than they would have gotten had they received it. No one turned down the qualifying offer and then had to settle for less money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, But I think this is a little bit of a factor of teams being pretty conservative with the offer last year. Like, in addition to Edwin Jackson, I think you could have made a pretty good case for, like, a guy like Torrey Hunter. Uh, going back to the Angels, they certainly would have been better off with Torrey Hunter at 113 than Josh Hamilton at 5, 125. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Torrey Hunter went on to get 226 from the Tigers. Again, he wouldn't have gotten that most likely if he had, had draft pick compensation attached. You can't just compare contracts across, uh, you know, compensation versus no compensation. But, right. you know, it was a pretty good find that the market valued Torrey Hunter at $13 million a year. Uh, and, you know, I think the Angels probably would have been better off keeping him. I don't think there was anyone last winter who shouldn't have gotten a qualifying offer. We can see with Adam LaRoche and Kyle Loesch specifically that there are guys on the fringes who are worth something close to $13 million a year, $14 million a year for this coming winter. Um, and if they get the qualifying offer, their market will evaporate. Okay. The um, Looking over your piece, uh, your pieces, um, both from – uh, I think last Thursday, right, and then, and then today as well, because that, that pitching one was a monster, I believe. Is that the, is that the case? 
Actually, the, the picture one was slightly longer. They were both over 2,000 words, but both of them were very long. Yeah, okay. The, um, I noticed that, uh, so you, what you do is uh, you, you look at some guys who are uh, maybe on the, on the, fr- on the, the fringe, the bubble, as it yeah, were. Right. Um, <clears throat> and uh, you will, at the end of uh, a write-up uh, regarding each of these players, you say, uh, uh, the, you, you come to a conclusion. Uh, should the team make the offer or not? Um, uh, generally, uh, for most of these, you, it's a pretty straightforward um, answer from you. You say, yeah, make it or not. But that there's a little bit of editorial nature in your comment with regard to Kendris Morales, uh, yeah. I notice. Uh, you say, don't make the offer, but the Mariners will. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, you, and I assume this because you know about the Mariners. What's going on with Kendris Morales, and what is the gap between his overall talent and, and how the Mariners are maybe evaluating him? Yeah, the Mariners, uh, I mean, you know, they're not super well run, as people probably have guessed from the outside. Uh, and if you follow them super closely, you can see that they're even worse run than it might appear uh, <laughs> as of late. Uh, but basically, the Mariners have decided that Kendris Morales is a middle-of-the-order hitter, a true cleanup RBI production guy, and if they lose him, they're screwed because they have no first-base prospects or DH prospects anywhere in the organization that are anywhere close to stepping in. And they, they look at it and say, we have an organizational weak point, uh, Kendris Morales fills that organizational weak point. Uh, we need Kendris Morales back. It is, it is not nearly as much about figuring out whether they could spend that $14 million uh, more effectively and go find multiple players who would provide more value than Kendris Morales would at a $14 million price uh, for 2014. They just look at it and say, he's a thing we need. Let's not lose him. That's essentially as deep as the analysis goes. Okay. Uh, the problem is Kendris Morales, you know, nice, okay, solid role player, not a thing that anyone really needs the $14 million. Right, you don't want to do that. Okay. Uh, and then uh, are there any other sort of uh, situations there where you think the team is going to um, do something different than um, than, than what seemed to make sense uh, in a vacuum or, or, or even uh, in, in the context that's already being provided? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of them that are it's, uh, somewhat hard to predict. I think the uh, Josh Johnson one can really go either way with the Blue Jays. Uh, I think when you look at Josh Johnson's track record and what kind of broken but talented pitchers went for last year, you can make a pretty good case that the Blue Jays should make the offer. When Dan Herring got $13 million after the, the qualifying offer was declining last year, uh, the Royals traded for Irvin Santana. They didn't give up anything, really, but they, you know, they took on Irvin Santana's $13 million uh, contract for 2013, coming off in the ER, uh, season where he had the area over five. Uh, I think the market showed last year that, you know, Talented pitchers coming off a poor season, there's still a robust market for them. Uh, and if the Blue Jays turn down the qualifying offer uh, and don't make it to Johnson, I think he's going to make something really close to that $14 million as a free agent. It might be 12 with some incentives. It might be, you know, sick with a whole lot of incentives uh, and a, a team option or something. But, you know, I think Josh Johnson is going to get paid uh, this winter um, if, the, if the Blue Jays don't make him the offer. And I think, you know, with that specific situation, this is a case where maybe there's in other people's players effect uh, really here. If the Blue Jays know his medicals better than anyone else, uh, they are the one who are, knows what his forearm soreness really means and what he was really telling the trainer. If they don't make the qualifying offer, I would take that as a pretty large red flag if there's another team and say, you know what, the team who just shut him down for the rest of the season and finished the season on the DL, uh, watched him get pounded uh, pretty regularly posting the RA over six, uh, that thinks they're in contention, gave up a lot to get him a year ago. Uh, you know, they decided not to bring him back on a one-year deal. That's a little bit of a warning sign, and it'll be interesting to see if they don't make the qualifying offer what Josh Johnson's market value ends up being uh, if teams kind of take this other people's players 
factor into account and say, well, the Blue Jays know more about Josh Johnson than anyone else. Maybe they know something we don't. Uh, I think Johnson's going to get paid either way. We'll see All right. how yeah. we offer. Uh, another another player that's on the pitching list is Tim Lincecum, and um, yeah. I, I don't actually have anything to ask you about Tim Lincecum, but I do know that I noted today uh, that Tim Lincecum is actually older, uh, and this was a surprise to me. Um, it was older than Yusmero Petit, uh, presently his teammate and uh, the right-hander, who has an interesting narrative insofar as uh, he struck out many, many people uh, through his age 20 season, but only through the fast, uh, his fastball like 88-89. Uh, and then had very little success after that, uh, but then um, has pitched actually quite well in AAA. He's had his best AAA season to date, and he almost threw a perfect game the other day. And according to XFIP, that's not even the best game, not even the best start he's had. Um, those are all weird things, and it turns out he's still uh, he's still actually relatively young. He's still just in his 20, age 28 season. What is uh, what is that? What's going on there? That's this is journalism at, at work right now. What, how, what's going on? What's happening? Yeah, I think that it is going to be an interesting decision for the Giants, who actually arbitration eligible, I believe. He's got enough service time between all the times he's bounced around uh, to where they would have to make him an arbitration offer this winter. It's first year arbitration. He's not going to make a lot of money, especially because his picks from the majors have kind of been terrible. But you know, do they want to pay you know double or triple the league minimum? Uh, for a guy who's had a, you know, basically a good month, right? Like, uh, we saw last year Justin Ruggiano was kind of like the hitter version of this, a career minor leaguer who came up, tore the cover off the ball for the Marlins, earned the starting job in their outfield, and then has regressed significantly this year and hasn't been all that great. He's not been useless, but hasn't been that great. Uh, you know, with the Giants, I think they're going to have to look at Pete and say, you know, scouts have long said his, his deceptive delivery that works in AAA isn't going to work in the majors. There's a pretty long history of it not working in the majors. Uh, do we believe that, you know, a strong finish to the year, pitching against teams that may or may not be in the playoff race, uh, you know, maybe facing some expanded rosters in September of guys who don't belong in the major leagues, are we buying into this as a predictive thing, uh, or do we just think this was, you know, a good month and anyone can have a good month? Uh, it's going to be kind of an interesting question the Giants are going to have to answer. Right. Uh, because if they don't answer it, I mean, they're going to answer it one way or the other, but if they answer it to say, no, he's not worth the risk, then I'm sure that another team uh, will be very happy to see if, uh, if if it is worth the risk. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The dude's going to get a major league contract now. I mean, I don't think you can throw on a near-perfect game and pitch the way he has for the last month and have to settle for a minor league deal. Uh, but the question is, you know, is he worth 500000 750000 a million? Like, what are you willing to pay for a short burst of good performance from a no-stuff guy who has a, uh, you know, kind of a journeyman minor league career. At the same time, this is probably the exact same discussion we've been having about, you know, Jamie Moyer 10 years ago or Bronson Royal, you know, uh, when he was, you know, 26, 27. Like, you know, these guys sometimes develop later and maybe Petit is uh, on his way to having a, a late career bounce that we didn't see coming. All right. Seems like there are a lot of options. Hmm. I wish you had just given, a, like, a strict conclusion so we could have the answer. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I, I I do that sometimes, but I decided today to be vague. This is my like Jeff Sullivan moment where I have no conclusions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's Jeff Sullivan in a nutshell. Hmm. Uh, well, okay. Uh, yeah, you've uh, entirely fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. How does it feel? Uh, it feels like we did not talk enough about you forgetting your license. Yeah. Do you want to uh, know one other thing? Is uh, actually. Um, uh, we w- had agreed upon 3 p.m., but I said, oh, could we do it at 3.30? Um, that's because I was being summarily trounced 
uh, in uh, in tennis uh, by uh, by our uh, the one who pays our bills. Yeah, he's a pretty good tennis player. I've heard. He is. Uh, he is. Yeah. Um, it and didn't... You, you are not. I would assume. Well, no. I think actually, uh, by his own admission, uh, you say Appleman, de- decent strokes. He's sitting right across from me. Decent strokes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you say that. Just. Just rusty, he says. Yeah, my timing, my timing is pretty poor. Good, timing's off. Uh, decent, decent strokes though. Yeah, but he, uh, yeah, he, he does have, uh, he's got very good strokes. You mean, this is all uh, a very odd way to end the podcast. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, uh, very good. Uh, that has been uh, uh, managing editor Dave Cameron. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. That's uh, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. It's been a rousing edition of Fangraphs Audio. Something like rousing, I guess. 